Our gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord, as we open up your word, we are reminded of the fact that your word, the Bible, are life-giving words. Thank you for using men to pen the words, the exact words that you wanted by the power of your spirit so that we have here in front of us your word, your precious word that reveals you, reveals your glories, your glorious character, the gospel, the good news of your son for sinners such as us. And I pray that this morning you might remind us of the glories of the gospel yet again so that we might exalt Christ, that we might make much of him during this um, Christmas time, Father, and Lord, be filled with joy so that we tell others about Jesus. Lord, help us to be on mission, even as we celebrate his birth and his incarnation, his coming, his death on our behalf, as well as his resurrection. Help us to be people who are bold, who are proclaimers of Christ, who do so in love, remembering that we too were at one point without hope and lost in this world. Help us to share Christ with compassion and love and yet boldness. Father, I pray even this morning for those who are hurting amongst us. Lord, I know that there are many who are sick and ill, who are experiencing spiritual and physical and emotional um, trials and sufferings. Father, I pray for your great comfort upon them. That if they are Christians, that they would be comforted by the God of all comfort, their Heavenly Father. And if they are not Christians, that you might use those trials to draw them to the only hope, who is Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those amongst us who lost loved ones. And this is the first um, holiday season when Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's will be without that loved one. I pray for your encouragement upon their hearts as well, Lord. And that you might use us as a body to be mindful and sensitive to the spiritual needs of our brethren who have lost loved ones uh, this past year. We pray that you would help us to celebrate Jesus this morning in our hearts and that we might walk out of here impacted um, so much so that we want to tell people about who he is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to John chapter 3. John 3 is our text for this morning. The title of this morning's message is God's Greatest Gift. God's greatest gift. And we're going to be looking at just one verse this morning. As you know, John 3.16. John 3.16. There's an old saying that you've heard before that says, Familiarity breeds contempt. And we use that um, slogan um, to mean that when something becomes so familiar to us, it's so easy for us to become indifferent to that particular thing or purpose, and maybe it no longer has the same impact or effect upon us that it once did. And if anything is true of a verse in the Bible, it's, it might be true of John 3.16. That when it comes to John 3.16, familiarity may breed contempt in many of us as believers. It's the single most familiar verse for people, especially for Christians, but also for non-Christians. If you watch sports, it seems like any time you watch a sporting event, even a basketball game I was watching the other day, a guy, the guy was shooting the free throw, and you can see in the, in the background a guy holding up a John 3.16 sign. Right? Perhaps it's the, the verse that somebody used to share Christ with you as you look back at your Christian, Christian pilgrimage. Perhaps it's the verse that you, one of the first verses, if not the first verse that you memorized in Sunday school or in Awana growing up. It's a very familiar verse, but a highly significant verse, isn't it? Theologians have highlighted the significance of this verse in the past by calling it the great pearl of the Holy Scriptures. John 3.16. 
The most precious, multifaceted diamond in all of the Bible. Some have called it the Mount Everest of Bible verses. It's a highly significant verse. The Reformed theologian John Murray wrote of John 3.16, quote, No treatment of the atonement can be properly oriented that does not trace its source to the free and sovereign love of God. Here in John 3.16, we have an ultimate of divine revelation and therefore of human thought. Beyond this, we cannot and dare not go, end quote. The Puritan pastor Matthew Henry said that in John 3.16, we have the very marrow and quintessence of the whole gospel. In other words, the very substance and heart of the gospel is found in John 3.16. So central is John 3.16 that the great preacher and pastor C.H. Spurgeon commented this, that John 3.16 might be put in the forefront of all my volumes of discourses as the sole topic of my life's ministry. Highly significant. Finally, theologian Burke Parsons writes this, quote, In John 3.16, we find both the beautiful simplicity of the gospel and the glorious depths of the gospel. John 3.16 is not just for children to memorize in Sunday school. It is for the greatest biblical scholars and theologians to examine. And it is for every Christian to contemplate daily as we rest in the sovereign, gracious, and sacrificial love of God. How true that is, isn't it? It's a wonderful, wonderful verse highlighting the sovereign, gracious, and sacrificial love of God. And that's why I want us to contemplate this particular verse this morning, beloved, as we anticipate Christmas Day. But I know that every single day we are obviously celebrating Christ. But this is such a key verse, such a a wonderful verse for us to focus upon this morning as we anticipate um, Christmas Day. And, And we need to remember that the verse falls in the middle of a particular context, doesn't it? It's in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. This man, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus by night, is is no ordinary common man. He is a, a very prominent teacher in Israel. In fact, he is the most prominent religious man in all of Israel, an influential leader. A part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling body or government of the Jews of the day. This is a very religious man. This would have been like you and I meeting with the Pope, if you will. Like that kind of uh, of religiosity. Very religious, prominent, popular man. And the Lord Jesus, as he often does with people, gets into this extended conversation with this man by the name of Nicodemus. And the topic is the nature of eternal life. And if anyone should have known how one could receive eternal life. It should have been this particular prominent man by the name of Nicodemus because he's supposed to be the predominant theologian in all of Israel. But he doesn't understand the nature of eternal life. And very quickly, instead of him teaching Jesus, Jesus teaches this man and begins to evangelize him. And what he tells this man is that religion won't save him. That it's not about works or religion. He was a highly religious man who trusted in those things like any common Pharisee would. Religion won't save him, but if he wishes to receive eternal life, he must be born again. He must experience the new birth. He must be regenerated. And of course, only God is able to do that in the human heart. 
In other words, salvation is first and foremost a sovereign act of God brought about by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus teaches this man first and foremost. But on the human side of things, Jesus also places the full weight of responsibility on this man by telling him that if he is to receive eternal life, he is to believe in Jesus, put his trust in the Son of God who is standing before him. And this is, of course, the case for anyone, right, who who desires to receive eternal life. You must believe in Jesus Christ. This is what somebody told me. Um, some 26, 27 years ago, shared this verse with me and told me, Kempis, you must believe in Jesus in order for you to be saved, in order for you to receive eternal life. And the question that arose in my mind, having, uh, under, having experienced certain things in my own background and testimony was this, why? Why should I believe in Jesus Christ? Why would I entrust myself to God By believing in the Son that He sent. And this is the verse that was quoted to me. John 3.16. Here's the answer. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And here's the purpose. For what purpose did He give His only begotten Son? In order that, or that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Glorious verse, isn't it? It encapsulates in beautiful language the message of salvation to a lost world. There's never been a greater gift than the one that God has given to the world that we celebrate during Christmas time. And this morning, there are three qualities of this wonderful gift for us that I want us to ponder on and relish upon as we anticipate Christmas Day. Three qualities of this wonderful gift for us to ponder and relish upon. And first of all, I want you and I to ponder this morning the beautiful reality that God's gift is first and foremost a love gift. It's a love gift. It's easy for us to be, for that to just become common. For us maybe to walk with the Lord for many, many years and to forget about the love of God that has been displayed toward us. But God's gift at Christmas time is a time for us to celebrate the love gift that God has extended to the world. Those are the best kinds of gifts, aren't they? Love gifts. Which one of us loves to receive a gift from somebody who is reluctant in giving us that gift? Because they have to give us a gift out of obligation. You ever received a gift like that from somebody? I don't want that kind of gift. None of us want that. We want love gifts. And especially for us who are Christians, we want to live lives where we act out out of a heart of love for other people. And why is that? Because this is what we have learned from our Heavenly Father. Amen? What's the motive for God working in a person to save them? It's God's love. It's God's love. Verse 16, For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Now, he's going to show us in a minute how in particular God loved the world. But see that little word, so? Don't just go past that and just read it flippantly. For God so loved the world. It's a simple little word tacked on in the front of God's love, but it's so significant. Some of you are going to pick up your little kids later on. And I don't know about you guys, but my little girl, 
Um, oftentimes the first thing that comes out of her mouth is this. Daddy, I am so, what? Hungry. What is she trying to emphasize? The greatness of her hunger, right? Or how about us? When we want to communicate to somebody or to our spouse or a kid the extent of our love for them, what do we say to them? I love you so much. And we even add O's, right? I love you so oh much. Simple little word, but it highlights the magnitude of God's love, the greatness of the love of God, the intensity and immensity and immeasurableness, if that's even a word, of God's love. Don't we sing songs like these? For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. Great is the measure of our Father's love. I love that song. It's out of Psalm 103, verse 11. Great is the measure of our Father's love. God's love is great and immeasurable. God so loved the world. Let that sink in this morning. God so loved the world. God so loved you, Christian, that He gave His Son to die for your sins. C.H. Spurgeon comments here, God's love is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water, deprive the sun of its light, or make space too narrow than diminish the love of God, end quote. And the great hymn that we often sing says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. See, for centuries, theologians and preachers and hymn writers have been trying to come up with words, human language, to communicate the vastness and the greatness and the immeasurableness of the love of God. But it's all human language at the end of the day. We treasure the fact that God has loved the world. And can I remind us this morning, it's not just that God chooses to love. It's not just that. It's that God is love. He is love. It's who he is. First John chapter four, verse eight, the one who does not love does not know God for God is love. John doesn't say that Love is all that God is, and we must always be careful not to separate or isolate one attribute from all of the other attributes of God, such as God's holiness and God's wrath, His righteous indignation against sin. But he's saying that love is God's very nature. He acts from His own loving character. Love flows from within God Himself. It's who He is. It's natural to Him to love. Now, one way to measure the greatness of God's love is by considering who he has placed or set his love upon, right? How do you appreciate a a beautiful diamond, but by placing it on a dark, pitch black background or surface, and then you can appreciate its brilliance and its beauty, right? In the same way, we marvel and we're astounded at God's love as we recognize that he has loved a dark wicked, rebellious world, right? Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Not the physical world here, 
or the world system. There are contexts where world means that. But God so loved the world, simply meaning humanity, mankind. He has loved people like you and I, who the Bible describes as being by nature sinners. People who are totally dead in our trespasses and sins, like my brother Alex read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God loves the world. People who are rebels, who've gone astray. People who have not acknowledged our Creator. People who are indifferent to God. Who don't give glory to God. Who don't live satisfied in Him. He has loved us who are indifferent to Him. Who don't acknowledge Him. Who have broken His good and perfect law. Given to us as an expression of His glory and for our good. You want to know the extent of the greatness of the love of God this morning? God loves sinful human beings such as you and I. We are the objects of His love. He loves people who neither ask for His help, nor are deserving of His love. Hear me. If one way to measure the greatness and intensity of love is by who one places that love upon, then God's love is boundless because He loves people who are unlovable, unattractive, and absolutely, hopelessly lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. Wow. Boundless, free love. See, I don't think that we understand the magnitude of the love of God because we don't understand the magnitude and the gravity of our sin and depravity as people. If we understood our sin, if we understood our wickedness, if we understood our depravity, then we would understand in a greater way the act of love whereby God has saved us if we are in Christ. This was the game changer for me in my conversion. I'll tell you that right now. I recall as a kid being so bitter, so hateful toward God. You know, I would, I would physically, literally shake my fist at the sky and profane the name of God, call him all kinds of profanities, and even yell at him with my fist shaking into the sky, I hate you, God. That was me as a little boy. And then over the years, as a, as a teenager, as I got bigger and bigger, I, was, I viewed myself as a victim. I hated God even more because of my past circumstances. And then God continued His work in my heart and life. He opened my eyes to see my sin from the inside, what no one else could see. That I was internally depraved, that I was internally a sinner. And not only that, But then God helped me to realize that even so, even though he perfectly knew what was in my heart, my sinful motives and attitudes and pursuits and all of that, that I was a self-idolater, he helped me to see that he still loved me. And he sent his son Jesus into the world to die for my sins. See, it's one thing to love people who are nice to you, who reciprocate your love. It's quite another thing to love people who hate you and who despise you, right? But that is what God has done. He's loved the world. Sinners, criminals, violent aggressors, rebels. And in case you don't think that any of those, uh, you, you are categorized under any of those, each and every one of us are those things. 
against a holy, righteous God. We're criminals, sinners, rebels against a holy God. God's love is immense when we understand our sinfulness. This is why Paul prays as he ponders the love of God. He prays for his Ephesian brothers and sisters in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, that they would comprehend the width, the length, the height, and the depth, and that they would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. They may be, they may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That they would just understand Christ's love. Because if they understand the love of Christ for them on the cross, then they are going to walk in a manner worthy of God's calling, you see. And in Romans 8.38, Paul says this, I am persuaded or convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Which leads us to our second point. If one way to measure God's love is for us to contemplate and to consider who He has set His love upon, namely sinful humanity, the world, listen, another way to consider His great love is by considering what kind of gift He has given to the world. So secondly, we need to ponder the beautiful reality that God's gift is a glorious gift. It's a glorious gift gift. Isn't it true that as human beings, think about this for a minute with me, we tend to measure as human beings how much we love and value someone by the gifts we give or the gifts that somebody gives us? We tend to measure the intensity of someone's love by those things, don't we? You know, in a couple of days or three days to be exact, all of you on Wednesday morning Maybe Tuesday night you have certain um, uh, traditions as an individual or as a family for Christmas Day. Uh, for the Hernandezes, typical for us is to get up on Wednesday morning. We'll have a special breakfast together, okay? And then we'll have some kind of a devotional focusing our attention on Jesus. And then eventually we'll make our way over to the living room and we do some unwrapping of Christmas gifts, and it's a wonderful, wonderful time. We love to take pictures of that event and all of that. And obviously trying to keep it in perspective that it's not about the gifts. You know, parents, all of those conversations, right? Now suppose, suppose that I wrap this beautiful box for my wife, Andrea, whom I love and I cherish and treasure. I pack this beautiful box and I give her this gift and of course, she's so excited, and with a sweet smile, she begins to open the gift and unwrap this. Of course, this is the gift from her, her lover, right, her husband. So she's really looking forward to this. And as she continues to open up that gift, what does she pull out of that big box but a wriggly stick of gum? What do you think about that? After you get past all of the evil thoughts about me, right? What a wretch. What's the matter with this guy? What would you think about my love for my wife given that gift? If it was an honest gift to her, here's a stick of gum, sweet wife. You would think that my love is cold, wouldn't you? I mean, that I have issues. You'd probably call the elders of the church, wouldn't you? You would think that my love is cold, that I'm indifferent to her. You see, we tend to measure as human beings how much we love and value someone by the gifts that we give that individual, don't we? 
or the gifts that we receive. If that's the case, and it is, then notice the gift that God gave to the world. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world, and here it is, that he gave his only begotten son. To what extent, to what degree did God love a sinful, fallen, rebel, wicked world by giving his glorious son, his glorious son, his only begotten son, his eternal son. I remember as a dad five times going to the hospital when one of my kids was born, and some of you can identify with this, I was so amazed at that little life that I was holding in, in, my, in my arms. And every single one of those children, I couldn't imagine, after my wife and how much I cherished and treasured her, I couldn't imagine my life without one of those little lives. I couldn't imagine loving a little creature more than those little human beings. Imagine that. Think back at that moment as a parent. And then imagine yourself having to give up your baby for the purpose of acquitting a criminal. Somebody who is clearly guilty. Imagine you having to sacrifice your child for somebody else who doesn't deserve salvation. Who doesn't deserve rescue. Imagine that. And then we can understand one percentage of what sacrifice God gave for us. He gave His best, beloved. He gave the most wondrous and glorious gift, the gift of His Son, the Son whom He loves perfectly. Jesus talked about this perfect love in John 3.35 when He said, The Father loves the Son, Jesus said, and has given all things into His hand. And in John chapter 5, verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. Jesus spoke much of the relationship between Himself and His Father that existed for eternity before the foundation of the world. He has always been the Son. He is the eternal Son of the Father. We've been learning so much about God's Son from the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? Who is He? He is the Son of God. Equal with God. Share of the same divine nature as God the Father. He is Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus is the God-man. Amen? He's the God-man. Definitively, we've seen that again and again and again in the Gospel of Mark. That's the message of the Gospel writers. He is God in human flesh. He took upon human nature. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word speaking of the Son of God, became flesh. That is, He took on Himself human nature. He added humanity to His deity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal Son of God took on human nature, and He came to earth, humbled Himself by being born of a virgin, under human parents, lived among us, bore our human frailties, and partook of our infirmities. Isn't that what we're celebrating during Christmas time? The incarnation, the coming in flesh of the Son of God? And that's not all He partook of. He bore our sins on the cross at Calvary. He went to the cross and died in the place of sinners, 
and rose from the dead three days later. He is God's glorious gifts give to us. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means that Jesus became a wrath-removing sacrifice on the cross. That He bore our sins and absorbed upon Himself the fullness of the Father's just righteous wrath for our sins. He is the propitiation for us, the wrath-removing sacrifice for those of us who have trusted in Christ. What love. What a glorious gift. God gave us the gift of a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. One pastor has put it very simply this way. If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have, would have given us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is why the angel announced in Luke 2, For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What do we need? We needed a rescue operation. We needed a rescuer, a Savior, and that is exactly whom God sent, His glorious Son. The greatest expression, beloved, of a sin-cursed, rebellious people is the glorious gift of Jesus Christ. Now question... What should be the response of every person to this glorious, loving gift? What should be the response? That's our third point. I want to encourage us to ponder the beautiful reality that God's gift is a grace gift. It's a grace gift. Notice, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, here's the purpose statement, in order that... Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Why did God give the greatest and most glorious gift of his son to the world? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Somebody asked me about this last week. Why is, is Jesus, why do you think that Jesus is, is taking so long to come back? Here's the answer. God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to what? To repentance. To trust in Christ. This verse is not teaching, as some have asserted, universalism, that all will be saved. We know this by, because of verse 18. Notice, he who believes in him is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Clearly, there are some who believe and others who do not believe, who won't believe. Why? Because they love darkness. They love their sin. They don't want to be exposed. So they do not come to the light with a capital L, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So not all will be saved. What the verse is saying is that salvation through faith in Christ is offered freely, graciously to all, even the worst of sinners. And the call of the gospel The summons of the gospel is to every single person who is to respond by receiving God's gift. Isn't that what we do with gifts? It would be awful if you buy your children a bunch of gifts on Wednesday morning. They're like, you know, Mama, Daddy, Mama, I really don't want to open the gifts. I want to just leave them closed, leave them wrapped. You buy gifts for the purpose of opening and unwrapping those gifts, don't you? What unwraps the gift of eternal life and salvation? Of a right relationship restored with the living God? Faith. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realize that in our culture of ambiguity and such a sort of a nebulous concept that is faith, we need to define that for a minute, don't we? This is not talking here about being a person of faith. Generally speaking, ambiguously speaking. This is not talking about believing in yourself so that you can accomplish all things, including salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. The object of saving faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? His atoning work on the cross. His glorious resurrection. It's Christ alone. It's not Christ plus your works. Christ plus other religions. Christ plus you attending church. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord, church attendance doesn't save you. Even giving to the Lord, humanitarian efforts don't gain any meritorious favor before God for you. It's all based upon the merits of Jesus Christ that a person can be saved and receive eternal life. It's Christ, faith in Christ. And what is, does it mean to believe or to have faith? Faith is a heartfelt commitment, isn't it? It's a heartfelt commitment where you abandon trust in yourself as a way to gain favor with God, your works, your resources, your religiosity. You abandon trust in yourself and instead you transfer, you put that trust in Jesus Christ alone apart from anything that you can ever or have done. It's Christ and Christ alone who saves This is a gift of grace that God has given us. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You're not worthy of it. It's hard for us to understand that, isn't it? We we are wired to be legalists. We think somehow that there's something that we do to somehow gain favor before a holy and righteous God. We cannot do anything to be justified before a holy God. It's by faith in Christ's work, finished work on the cross alone. And even as Christians, we must always guard ourselves from the mentality that God is going to love me more if I continue to perform, if I continue to do more, then he will love me more. We are wired naturally to be legalists. To somehow add to what Christ has accomplished. It's hard for us to understand that salvation and eternal life is all about the finished work of Christ. It's by grace alone that you are saved. Through faith in Jesus Christ. See, on the human level, gifts are normally given to people we deem worthy of a gift, right? Either because... It's the occasion of their birthday. We give them a gift because it's their their birthday. The occasion of their birthday calls for a gift. And so we're wired to give people 
birthday gifts or because we want to express our gratitude to someone. So we give them a gift because we've deemed that they deserve our gift because they've been kind to us or whatever. But do you understand that salvation is not that way? God's gift is by grace for those who do not deserve salvation. It is all a gift of his unmerited, undeserved kindness. Found in Jesus Christ. For people who are not worthy. For people who cannot do anything to earn his gracious gift. We heard this earlier, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Clearly, salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. We come to Christ, my friend, this morning, if you don't know Jesus, with empty hands of faith. Bringing only your sin to the foot of the cross. Oh God, I have broken your commandments. I have lived as a rebel sinner. Please forgive me. Please forgive me of my sins. I trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, His atoning death alone, not in anything that I bring to the table. We come to the cross with empty hands of faith if we want to receive eternal life and salvation from our sins. Just like the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. No works. No personal merits, no religion can gain God's favor. It's only Christ's finished work on the cross. It's all God's gracious gift. All his gracious gift. Can I put it this way? Using one of our popular figures from Christmas time, when it comes to salvation, God is not like Santa Claus. Think about it. God is not like Santa Claus. I despise, hate Santa. How many of you love Santa? How many of you believe that Santa actually exists? Good, okay? Talk to me after if you do, okay? I despise the myth that is Santa Claus. You know why? For one thing, he doesn't exist, but also he's the quintessential, perfect example of a works-based idol. Little God with a little G. You want him to give you a gift, kid, young person? Have you been naughty or nice? It's all about works, isn't it? Have you been a good person? You only get gifts if you deserve them based upon your performance. I don't understand. I have no clue why people love and and worship Santa so much during the Christmas season. I remember one time as we were at somebody's house with my kids when they were little, and one of my boys who will remain unnamed, mentioned to the child of this other family, they were talking about Christmas and all kinds of different things, and they mentioned to this other person, well, there is no Santa, one of my boys said. And it was, I mean, the parents were in outrage. Like, how could you, do you know what your son such and such said to my kid? That there is no Santa. Can you believe it? I don't understand what the big deal is about Santa. He is the quintessential works-based idol. God, beloved, is not Santa Claus. When it comes to salvation, God's gift is a loving, gracious, glorious gift. God offers to the world salvation through faith in His Son, freely and graciously, apart from anything that you can ever do. Anything. Many of us this morning have unwrapped that precious gift, haven't we? 
We've experienced the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We put our trust in Christ. Christmas for us is all about King Jesus having come to earth to redeem us, to buy us out of slavery to sin for himself. Amen? So many of us have done that. Others of you who are here this morning, you have a choice. As this verse says, you can choose to perish forever in a real physical place that the Bible calls hell, a place of eternal agony and torment, away from the presence of your Creator, away from communion with God. Or you can unwrap His gift. You can receive God's greatest gift, turn from your sins, and put your trust in Jesus alone. The call of the gospel is for all who believe. Amen? For all who believe. And my prayer has been that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved this Christmas. The story is told of a young soldier who had been killed in action during World War I. And as his pockets were being emptied, they found a letter that had been written to him by his mother that he carried with him wherever he went. The note said, or was titled, The Greatest Verse in the Bible. The Greatest Verse in the Bible. And it read like this. For God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest love, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest event, which is Christmas, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whoever the greatest offer believeth in him the greatest simplicity, should not perish the greatest security, but have eternal life, the greatest possession. This must have been a verse that that young man in the military savored again and again and again, right? This is how we ought to be as Christians with Christ, beloved. Savoring Christ and His Word. Taste and see that the Lord is good. My prayer for us as Christians this Christmas is that we might worship, adore, and tell other people about Jesus. Christ is our hope and our joy. He's God's greatest gift. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the greatest gift of Christmas, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that in him we have forgiveness, that in him we have been reconciled to you, that we are no longer your enemies, that we are now your friends and, most importantly, your children. Wow. Free access to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Eternal life. Quality of life here in the present despite our trials and sufferings. Hope beyond this world with all of its trials and afflictions. Lord, thank you for the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning I pray for those who do not know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that today you would work in their hearts and that they would respond to the message of Christ by putting their trust in Jesus Christ, that they would find forgiveness, that they would be made right with you, that they would look back at Christmas 2019 as the time when you saved them, when they began to fulfill their purpose to glorify you and enjoy you here on this earth and tell other people about your glories and your majesty. Father, may you do this in the hearts of people this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.